Second Kings chapter 15. And we left off with verse 19, verse 20. A new king is on the throne. His name is Menachem. You all may remember a, an Israeli prime minister years ago named Menachem Begin. Well, there's the name for you. This was a Menachem way before him. And he took the throne of Israel by conspiring to and then committing murder. He took out King Shalom. Now, we've had a string of these murders, these assassinations, and Shalom had also taken the throne by committing murder. And after Menachem took the throne, he's the king we're studying now, he quickly sold out Israel to his Gentile enemies. He did that by paying off the king of Assyria. And so the king of Assyria and Menachem had this agreement that if Israel pays money to Assyria, then Assyria won't attack Israel. That sounds an awful lot like protection money, doesn't it? Like what the mafia and other criminal groups have done over the years. And furthermore, this agreement was that Assyria would recognize Menachem as the king of Israel. So Menachem squandered all of this Israeli money and essentially placed his own people, God's people, under the authority of the Assyrians. Now, as a king, his job was to protect and defend Israel. He was supposed to be like a shepherd over the sheep, but he was a wolf, wasn't he? In John chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, John 10, verses 11 through 14, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life. For the sheep. But, now here's Menachem, but he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he is an hireling and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and have known and am known of mine. Now, the difference with Menachem is he didn't physically run away, but he ran away from his responsibility to defend Israel against Assyria. And there were a lot of things that went wrong that led up to this sellout of Israel. In the verse that I just read you from John chapter 10, the word hireling is mentioned there a couple of times. A hireling is someone who is paid wages to do a job. That's it. Now, perhaps some of you, when you were younger, were uh, told by your dad or mom, hey, you need to go down here to so-and-so's house. They've got some wood that needs to be chopped or loaded, and they're going to pay you so much per hour to do it, or they're going to pay you to pull their weeds or, or something like that. And you thought, oh, boy, that sounds like a lot of fun. But you went down there and you did the job and you got paid and you went home. 
you weren't invested in the work. You did your best, but it wasn't your dream to be a wood chopper or a weed puller for life. So it was just a job. You were a hireling. You really didn't care so much about their yard, but you wanted to do the job right so you would get paid. And rather than taking up the sword and leading his army against the Assyrians, as David would have, Menachem thought, well, I'll just use all this money, this pool of money, to buy off these attackers. But it gets worse than that. Look with me in verse 20. We're in 2 Kings chapter 15, if you've just joined us. Verse 20. And Menachem exacted the money of Israel, even of all the mighty men of wealth, of each man fifty shekels of silver, to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and stayed not there in the land. The word exacted means it was brought forth. And in fact, it's translated that way the first time we see the Hebrew word used in the Old Testament is in Genesis chapter 1 verse 12 where it says, And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind and God saw that it was good. So this was during Genesis when God created the heavens and the earth and we're told about the grass and the herb. When something is brought forth, it is the fruit of the thing that brought it forth. A woman brings forth a man child or a girl child. It's brought forth. And the fruit of God's labor was that the earth, which he made, brought forth grass. God exacted the grass from the earth that he made. And from the grass, the seed would come, which would allow the grass to bring forth more grass. Now, the fruit of a man's labor, which is what we're looking at in the case of Israel and these men of wealth who had money exacted from them. The fruit of a man's labor is brought forth or exacted when that man works and is paid for his labor. In other words, someone else doesn't bring forth the fruit of that man's labors unless he steals it from him. Now, I want you to imagine a payroll supervisor at a company skimming 10% of my wages without my permission before I ever receive my check. Now, I agreed to work that job for a certain rate, either a salary or an hourly wage or on commission, whatever the case may be. And whatever I earn is the fruit of my labor. And I deserve to collect that at the end. Now, there are certain agreements. I'll just take my paycheck, for example. There are certain agreements that I make voluntarily where deductions are taken out of my check. One of those is my health insurance. I don't have to have health insurance for 
the county I work in. But it would be pretty foolish not to, particularly as cheap as it is for me. And so I voluntarily agree to allow my county to take out a certain amount of money in exchange for health insurance. I voluntarily agree for accidental death and dismemberment, long-term disability, things like that that could, in just a few minutes, alter the course of my life and my financial standing. Those are voluntary agreements, and they're listed all the way down my check. There are three involuntary agreements that are taken out of mine and yours, too. Medicare, Social Security, and federal income tax. I don't have a say in that. Those are exacted from my check. They're taken out of my check, and I don't have a choice over it. But aside from those, imagine the amount of money that I would normally receive in my check being skimmed, having 10% taken by the payroll, the payroll supervisor. What he is doing there is he, exact, he is exacting the fruit of my labor from me, and he doesn't have a right to do that. The first income tax was levied in 1861 by President Lincoln, and it was to finance the war between the states, otherwise known as the Civil War, which is quite an irony, isn't it? There wasn't anything civil about it. Neighbors couldn't get along with each other. And it was supposed to expire. That's right. It had an expiration date on it, and it was set to expire in 1872. However, government politicians got a taste of money they got a taste of money that was exacted from other people for the fruits of their own labor. And it tasted good to them, so they couldn't let it go. It's like a bag of Lay's potato chips. It went all the way to the bottom, didn't it? And in those days, a cooperative effort, cooperative effort between Democrats and Republicans resulted in the passage of the 16th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States in 1909. And, of course, the president signed it. And here's what it said. The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived without apportionment among the several states and without regard to any census or enumeration. In other words, they had the, uh, the ability by law to take the fruit of another man's labor. All right? Now, since that day, there have been added to the income tax the following. The head tax, the T-tax, the real estate tax, excise taxes, sales taxes, gift taxes, social security taxes, Medicare taxes, two types of alternative minimum taxes, and it takes the average taxpayer, American taxpayer, until the end of April for what they earn to pay their taxes. So in other words, you're working for Uncle Sam till about the end of April, first part of May, and it changes. And that's almost one-third of your income that in one way or another goes to taxes. Now, it's probably higher than that. That's a pretty conservative amount. 
Now, that money is exacted from us when it's taken from our checks. No, I haven't gone away from the text. It's exactly what we're reading about. And we have no viable choice in paying for it because if we evade it, we go to prison, don't we? I have a friend that I used to work with, and he had a private business. And he called me one day, and he said, he said Andy, I'm in trouble. And he was, a, he was a law enforcement officer also. I said, what happened? He said, I failed to pay $80,000 in income tax over four years. And he said, I'm in trouble with the, the IRS, and they're doing a criminal investigation. And he ended up getting convicted. And I, I, in one way, I felt bad for him. He said, I, w- I wasn't trying to get rich. I was trying to pay for my wife's uh, back injury. You know, he went into the long story, and I felt sorry for him. But at the same time, he, he knew better. He knew what he was getting into when he started doing it. And so even though that money was exacted from him or should have been exacted from him by law, and we all felt sorry for him, he still had to pay that price. Now, when we pay a sales tax, on the other hand, we do it voluntarily, don't we? I mean, we don't like the sales tax, but if I buy a new fishing rod, now I don't buy new fishing rods very often, I just keep the ones I have. But if I buy a new fishing rod and the and it's $69, not that I'd pay that much for it, but it's just for sake of example. And then there's point, there's a eight and a quarter percent tax added to that. If I tell that sales clerk, hey, I don't want to pay that, then ultimately the decision is to either put the rod back where I found it and not pay for it or to agree to pay the sales tax so that I can walk out of Bass Pro Shops with the rod Okay, that's, that's a voluntary. I don't get that choice with my income tax. And as a matter of personal opinion, I have thought, long thought that the sales tax was the way to collect taxes and put the IRS right out of business. And I can get a good amen for that, right? Yeah. Now, you know how the wealthy men of Israel must have felt. When Menachem took 50 shekels from each one of them to finance his peace deal with the enemy, with the Assyrians. We're doing the same thing, by the way, in this country. We're sending money to all over the world to our enemies, to people who hate our guts and would love to put us out of business. And so what Menachem actually did with these wealthy men is he punished them for their achievement because he didn't take money from everybody took money from, it says in the text, the wealthy men. He, I don't know what else to say about him other than he's a socialist, but he didn't even issue a flat tax across the board. So everyone would have to pay something, even if it was just a little bit. Just stole it from the wealthy men. He made an agreement to use taxpayer money for an unlawful purpose. That's what we're seeing right here. God warned Israel about making covenants with other nations. Remember what God said to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 2? Of course you don't, but I'm going to remind you. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 2. This is what God said to Solomon. Of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. 
He did exactly the opposite of what God told him to do. And back in our text, it says in verse 20, And Menachem exacted the money of Israel, even of all the mighty men of wealth. Boy, he would have fit right in with our current presidential administration, wouldn't he? Our president wants to, and is, he may be successful, wants to create what he calls a wealth tax. It's a proposed tax on billionaires. And the idea is to levy a separate tax, in addition to all the ones I just named you, a separate tax on the assets that a billionaire already has, solely based on the fact that he makes too much money in the eyes of certain liberals. And it's unconstitutional, just like the progressive income tax is, in my opinion, and always has been. But you know, Menachem, just like ours, never let the Word of God stand in his way when it came to financing his own agenda. And the liberal politicians don't let the Constitution of the United States, much less God's Word, stand in their way when it comes to financing their agendas. This stuff didn't just start in our lifetimes, and that's what we're seeing here in the Bible. If you think, well, boy, it's really getting out of control, and it is. But it's been out of control for a long time. God told the prophet Micah what he thought about those who try to take by force the fruits of another man's labor. Listen to Micah chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. He said, Woe! To them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds, when the morning is light, they practice it, because it is in the power of their hand, and they covet fields and take them by violence and houses and take them away. So they oppress a man in his house, even a man and his heritage. If you don't believe that's true today, just don't pay your property taxes. See what happens to the house you, you thought was your own. I've, our house has been paid for for over nine years. We don't owe anything on it. But boy, we owe a lot. Seems like every year we're paying for that house that we already own. The wealth tax, the progressive income tax, what Menachem did to the people of Israel, all of it is oppression in the sight of God. And I'll probably get... I'll probably have IRS agents standing at my door this week. Well, we heard that you, yes, you did hear it right. Let's play it back and hear it again. But it's all oppression in the sight of God. And the ones who go about doing this evil business will not be that haughty when they answer to God about their evil deeds. So although, and I'm trying to encourage you here, Although this is hard to take sometimes, watching your money just go right out and then watching all of these ungodly programs being financed with your dollars, it's hard to take. And there's not anything you can do about it. You can't stop it from happening. You can vote, you can write letters, and you should. But you ultimately can't stop it. But be encouraged that those people who do that, are going to have to answer to God, and God's not going to accept their excuses. He's going to tell them the same thing he told Israel. 
I told you not to make covenants with the enemies, and you did it anyway. And you stole from my own people. So the king of Assyria turned back and stayed not there in the land. Now here's the problem with that. That money is going to run out. And that king is going to die someday. And if the money runs out before the king dies, what do you think is going to happen? The king's going to want some more money. The Assyrian king is going to say, well, that was then. Now we're, we're out of that money. We need to have another treaty, another agreement, another covenant. Or we're going to attack Israel. Greed has no end except for total destruction. The money's never enough and the power is never enough. You remember what God said to Micah? They... They do this because the power is in their hands. They do it because they can. So every corrupt government in the world, including our very own, does things like that because they can. But there's going to come a day when they can't anymore. And that's the day we need to have our eyes on. Don't get so bogged down and discouraged. Hey, look, I'm madder than a wet hen about it too, just like you are. But don't let it overtake you to the point where you can't see what's on the horizon, that God's going to rectify all this. Jesus is going to take this thing and redeem it, and we're going to be under his government again. But meanwhile, it is a little bit hard to take, so let's uh, look at how what God's Word says about it. Look with me in verse 21. And the rest of the acts of Menachem and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Menachem slept with his fathers, and Pekahiah, his son, reigned in his stead. So Menachem's acts looked just like his predecessors, just like the people who came before him. In fact, you probably could have a written, filled-in document with macros that say, did that which was evil, and just... Copy and paste that all the way down with some of these kings. Or walked in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. That would be another macro you could have and just hit it here and here and here. So many of these kings have that same sorry testimony. Look in verse 23. I'll read verse 23 and 24 and then we'll comment on that. In the 50th year of Azariah, remember that's Uzziah, he's over in Judah. Azariah, king of Judah... Pekahiah, the son of Menachem, began to reign over Israel in Samaria and reigned two years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. There are the two macros that were common to some of these other kings. Now, what else would we expect from the seditious, evil Menachem, but for him to have a son just like himself? And in fact, apart from God's grace, that's the plight of every sinner. Everyone who's ever born. A sinner, like Adam, begets a sinner who begets a sinner. No sinner begets a righteous person. You don't, in the history of mankind, outside of the birth of Jesus Christ, no person has ever begotten a righteous person. They've begotten a sinner. And this unrighteous nature passed right down from Adam. So I want you to try to remember that when you read about God commanding his people 
to not only kill the men of war, but also the women and the children and all that. Remember that God knows ahead of time what these people would have turned out to be and how they would have hated him. He's not ignorant of one thing. And so his judgment is always perfect. He's not fooled into thinking, well, if those... If, if he just let those babies be born, perhaps they would turn out to be wonderful Christian people. That's a judgment only God can make. He's not fooled into thinking they'll be anything other than the evil that their parents were. Now, I'm sure when I was born, my mother and father thought I was the most perfect baby they'd ever seen. And perhaps they thought or hoped I'd always be precious and that I would walk according to the word of God and not according to the course of this world. But as I grew, and it didn't take them long to see my sin, like when I used to touch the record player and get my hand spanked. I don't call CPS on my parents. That's just the way it was handled back then. And then they saw me grow up and make some decisions that were good and some that were bad. And as much as my parents loved me and as much as they wanted me to be perfect, they couldn't make me so. I wasn't born that way. And they couldn't turn me into that. I needed a representative. Someone who was perfect to make me acceptable, to make me perfect in God's sight. And it was by the grace of God that love came down in the person of Jesus to make me whole. Otherwise, my end would be just like these evil kings and their evil offspring. And my end would be now as the good kings, as the ones who trusted in Christ, who weren't perfect but in the person of Jesus they are. Verse 25, but Pekah, the son of Remaliah, a captain of his, that is of Pekahiah's, conspired against him and smote him in Samaria in the palace of the king's house, with Argob and Ariah, and with him fifty men of the Gileadites. And he killed him and reigned in his room. And here we go again. It was almost predictable that yet another conspiracy to assassinate the king would happen. And it's no surprise that the attack came from inside Pekahiah's own military ranks. Now the way this verse is written makes it a little bit difficult to decide whether these two people called Argob and Ariah were also slain or whether they were in league with Pekah and his Gileadite band. So let's look at what we would call internal evidence. That is evidence that's within the verse itself. Look at the phrase in verse 25, and this is about Pekah. It says, and he killed him. It doesn't say he killed them. He killed him. So that appears to say that he only killed Pekahiah, not Argob and Ariah. Now there's some external evidence. That's evidence. It's in the Bible. It's outside of these verses. And it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 3. 3 and verse 13, if you're taking notes, Deuteronomy 3, 13. And the rest of Gilead, now we had Gileadites mentioned here in our text, 
and the rest of Gilead, and all Bashan, being the kingdom of Og, gave I unto the half-tribe of Manasseh, all the region of Argob, there's a name in our verse, with all Bashan, which was called the land of giants. Now, Argob was near to Gilead. It was on the same side of the Jordan River as Gilead. And the men who were with Pekah, the captain who assassinated Pekahiah, those men were Gileadites. Gileadites. Now, Ariah, the other name in our text, is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. His name means lion. That's all we know about him. We can't make much of an inference here. But overall, I think there's a good case to be made that these two men, Ariah and Argob, were with the Gileadites and with Pekah when, king, when the king was assassinated in his own palace. Now, verse 26, And the rest of the acts of Pekahiah and all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. So to sit on the throne at all costs, that was Pekah and Pekahiah's legacy. But his works were written down. So were the works of every other evil king. And they're not encouraging to us, and we don't see them here. Verse 27, In the two and fiftieth year of Azariah, that's Uzziah, king of Judah, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, began to reign over Israel in Samaria and reigned twenty years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. So Israel has another evil king, and this time he reigns over 20 years. That's miserable. So the question here is, after all this, would Israel finally turn to the Lord? Would they finally say, Lord, you have chastened us. You've scourged us with these evil rulers, and we deserved every act of oppression that was committed. We deserve to be delivered into the hand of our enemies. We're sinful. Forgive us, return to us, that you may be our God and we may be your people. And the answer to that question is no, they're too stiff-necked and hard-hearted for that. And now they're going to pay an even greater price than they already have. Look in verse 29. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, came Tiglath-Pileser, king of Israel, and took Ijon and Abel-Beth-Maacah and Janoah and Kedish and Hazor and Gilead and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and carried them captive into Assyria. Now, Tiglath-Pileser was most likely the son of the prior king, Pul. Now, Pul was the Assyrian king whom Menachem bribed. And remember what we said a while ago? The money runs out or the king dies. One of the two happens. And then the next king says, well, I didn't sign that covenant. There's no agreement between Israel and me. And I mentioned that the money always runs out. So this new Assyrian king, this will tell you what a character he was. He did not respect the covenant his father had with Israel, with Menachem. Israel found out the hard way right here that making a covenant with other nations was a bad idea. God had already told him back in Deuteronomy, do not do this. And once again, as they have every time, they found out 
that disobeying God's a bad idea. It's not. It's more than just a bad idea, but it's a bad idea at the very least. And if you look at all the land Assyria took away in this verse, it was quite a bit. But you know what also strikes me, as we've seen evil king after evil king in Israel, as the pastor put very well when we were looking at Hosea, that Israel was kind of the liberal sister and Judah was more conservative. So God's put up with Israel's liberalism concerning religion and everything else for so long that God's long-suffering was was speaking to me here. I, I thought, well, Lord, you sure have put up with them a long time and are just now delivering them into the hands of their enemies. He could have done that the first year of the first evil king. He could have said, oh, no, we're not having that. But he gave them time after time. He's long-suffering. Aren't you glad he is, though? Well, I sure am. And he was long-suffering and long-suffering. And finally, they crossed his line, and he said, all right, I'll, I'll let them come take some of your land. Because the enemy could do nothing except God allow it to happen. And he'd given them many years to repent, and they would not. In Acts chapter 1, the apostles had, along with all of the other people in Israel, the apostles had been under the cruel reign of Roman tyrants. They didn't make life easy on the Jews at all. They were a second-class people to them. But listen to what these apostles asked Jesus after his resurrection in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. It says, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Now, although these apostles did not fully understand that the kingdom Jesus was going to restore was not a geographical kingdom or a national kingdom per se, it was a spiritual one. And it would take place in a geographical place, in a national place. But it wasn't what they thought. They thought, well, you know, we had this king over Israel, and now we have these Roman tyrants, and perhaps Jesus will go and take them away, and he'll sit on that throne, and this land will become his again. That was their idea of him restoring the kingdom unto them. They didn't have uh, the full understanding, it appears, to the spiritual sense to, to know that, but they did have the spiritual sense to recognize that it would only be the Lord who could restore the kingdom. That's what they understood. Now, in Pekah's day and in the days of the wicked rulers before him, Israel did not ask of the Lord this very thing, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They didn't appeal to God. They didn't look to the Lord. Their earthly kingdom was shattered. They were carried away captive. They didn't have to worship in the high places all this time, but they did. They didn't have to be led to commit the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, but they did. And no king or kingdom on this earth could have touched them to their hurt if they had been walking with the Lord their God. But now, because they haven't, he's delivered them into the hands of their enemies. In verse 30, 
And Hoshea, the son of Eliah, Elah made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and smote him, and slew him, and reigned in his stead in the twentieth year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. When you live by conspiracy, you die by conspiracy. And the one who made others look over their shoulders has now suffered the same fate as his victims. Proverbs chapter 22, verses 24 through 25 Proverbs 22, verses 24 through 25. And this is for the people with whom Pekah and the kings before him made friends. It says, Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man thou shalt not go, lest thou learn his ways and get a snare to thy soul. So Pekah had made friends with angry men. They were all ready to take out the king. Hey, let's get him. Let's go get him. All these Gileadites and so forth. But that turned out to be a snare to his own soul. Verse 31, And the rest of the acts of Pekah and all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. So the rest of his 20-year reign had some stories, had some history to it, and they were written down. As far as we know, nothing in them was good. That's a long time to not do anything that's worth mentioning. 20 years. In verse 32, In the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, began Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, to reign. Now we're going to return to Judah, the conservative sister, as I said, the conservative sister of Israel, as we've learned in the study of Hosea, and Jotham, the son of Uzziah, Azariah, who was leprous. Remember, he had leprosy to the day of his death. Jotham, who reigned in his father's place, is going to have his story told. And now we look at it in verse 33. Five and twenty years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. Now, even though he was old enough to sit on the throne, he was still a young man in many ways. Well, we don't have any 25-year-old presidents. We have some who act like five-year-olds, but their actual biological age is never 25. Our Constitution doesn't allow that. And, well, if we're going to go by that, <laughs> I, hope we, I hope this is not a sign of things to come that we just throw the Constitution away, but... Seems like so many have, including the Supreme Court. I go on to the rest of this verse. Jerusha was the daughter of Zadok. Now that name Zadok is probably ringing in your ears. Oh, that's the priest. No, not this one. There are a lot of Zadoks mentioned in the Old Testament. There was one, the most famous one, who was a priest under David's reign. But this is just another man named Zadok, another Israelite. And we don't know anything else of Jotham's mother, Jerusha, who is listed here, she's also mentioned in this same context in Second Chronicles 27, which tells the same story as what we're reading about here. In verse uh, 34 and 35, and then we'll have some comment on that. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Well, there's some refreshing news. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done, howbeit. I bet you if I just told you to cover that verse up, you could tell me what it says. The high places were not taken away. 
Oh, there it is. They weren't removed. The people sacrificed and burnt incense still in the high places. He built the higher gate of the house of the Lord. So very much like his father in what he did. Jotham did that which was right. In other words, the things he did were right in the sight of the Lord across the board. However, he left the high places standing where the people continued to worship. He was content to leave alone what his father was content to leave alone. And we've seen this more than once in our study of the kings. But let's hit another learning point here. And let me tell you, this, this can be kind of sensitive for us sometimes. I believe it is. But we still need to look at it. We don't, we don't skip things in the Bible. We don't, when something appears, we go over it, even though it might make you cringe. You might say, oh, boy, I don't know about that. Give it some thought. And just remember, God's Word bears these things out. I think it's safe to say that most, if not all of us in here and watching on the Internet, love our parents, even if they're gone. I think that's a pretty safe statement. You may have had a hard life. Maybe one of your parents wasn't so kind to you. But in the big picture, I believe everybody in here would say, you know what, I love I love my parents. I do. God if it wasn't for my parents, I wouldn't be here. Now, that's an accurate statement, isn't it? And uh, God blessed you by giving you parents so you could be born. And there are traditions that our parents had, and some of which we may have carried on. Some of those traditions are wonderful to carry on, like cooking certain dishes. You say, well, this was my mother's recipe, or... This is how my dad taught me to grill a brisket. This is how my, my dad taught me to, to fish or cut the yard or whatever. There, there's all sorts of traditions. But then there are maybe some traditions that should not be carried on. And that's the hard part. So if your father was a thief... You shouldn't carry on his tradition of stealing. You can still love your father, but you don't want to carry that tradition of stealing. If your parents believed that you could lose your salvation, you shouldn't carry that tradition on. And it's hard to admit to ourselves when our parents were wrong because we respect them and we love them. And we were taught growing up, you don't talk back to your mom and dad. And that's, that's a good lesson. However, in a case like Jotham's, he was wrong to carry on one of the traditions of his fathers. He was right to carry on the tradition of doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. He was wrong to carry on the tradition of leaving the high places standing so the people could continue to sin by worshiping and burning incense there. Incense was to be burned by the priest in the tabernacle or in the temple in these days. But I want you, as you consider that, I want you to listen to what Jesus said about this in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 37. It's Matthew 10, 34 through 37. Jesus said, Think not that I come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace but a sword. Now he's talking about the kind of peace that only he can give, not neighbors getting along. He didn't come to make you not get along with each other. In, in your personal lives. He said, I came not to send peace but a sword. 
For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes, or enemies, shall be they of his own household. Now here's the key. Think about this when it comes to those traditions that are evil. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now at any time in there, did Jesus say, don't love your mother? Nope. Don't love your father, don't love your children. He did not say that. In fact, he commands the opposite. He said, don't love them more than me. If what they say, let's say you're talking about your your mother. If what your mother says and does is against God's word, then your love for God should keep you from going against his word, even if your parents do or did. Even if it means disagreeing with what your mom or dad did. Now, that doesn't mean if your parents are alive, you go up and say, I'm going to tell you something I've been waiting to tell you a long time. You're wrong. You're dead wrong. That's not how you do that. What you do is you do that which is right in the sight of the Lord. You love God's word more than you love your parents. And you do that which is right. Now, if your mom or dad say, I want to know why you're doing that. Mom, dad, God's word says this about it. That's why. I don't mean any disrespect. I love you. But but I'm going to do this because Jesus said, if we don't love him more than we love our parents and our sons and daughters and so forth, we're not worthy of him. And I love his word enough to do that which is right. Now we're going to come back to that because we're out of time. And there's quite a bit more to say about it. And I think it's something that uh, at some point or another all of us have thought about. And if not, maybe you will now. Let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, sometimes these sayings in your word are hard. We have to meditate long upon them. But Lord, I pray that you just teach us continually that they're for our benefit and that everything you command us to do or to not do, to say or not say, every response and motive that we're to have, that the words you give us about those things are for our good, for our learning, for our admonition, that we may walk worthy of our calling as Christians. And Father, as we look at your word in that way, I pray we'd set aside any of the preconceived notions we have, the the moral judgments we've made about this thing or that thing, and just submit to what the Bible says about it and do it by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.